You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If we haven't met, my name is Greg. I'm one of the residents here at Liberty, and I, I do love big words, but it's only a coping mechanism to try to convince people that I'm intelligent. Um, so this morning, we're going to be continuing our teaching series, um, which we've been in for the past couple of weeks. We're talking about prayer. Um, today, we're talking about prayer as work. Prayer as work. And our, our text this morning is Daniel 6, verses 1 to 13, which if you're looking at uh, one of the black hardcover Bibles in the seat back in front of you, that's going to be on page 743. As you turn there... I want you to imagine this. It's a Tuesday afternoon, and I am determined once again to try to sit down and have a few minutes of uninterrupted prayer, right? Alone time with God. It's good for my soul is what I'm told. And so I lean back in the worn leather chair in the corner of my living room. I get comfortable. I grab a blanket, and I begin to pray. And as I do, it sounds something like this. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that my my phone goes off. I should know better than to pray with my phone in my lap, I think to myself. But I check my text messages and it's a friend. And so I quickly respond and then place my phone on the end table face down on do not disturb and try to refocus on prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for my family You've given me an amazing daughter, a son on the way, and a wonderful wife. Uh, A wonderful wife who, shoot, will be home in about 15 minutes and who will come home to a sink full of dirty dishes that I told her would be clean by now. I should do the dishes. I'll do the dishes. Okay, that's what I'll do. I'll do the dishes, and then finally, when dishes are clean, I'll be able to refocus on prayer. And so I swivel off the chair, and I head to the sink, scrub the dishes, dry the dishes, put them in the cabinets, and finally, chore complete, I saunter back to the chair. I sit down and impulsively, just kind of instinctually, grab my phone off the end table, check my messages. And my friend had responded, and he's asking me if I want to play pickleball tonight. And I immediately just send a trash-talky response like, man, I'm cool with playing pickleball as long as you're cool with losing. And then I remember, oh, shoot, I should have run those plans past Alexis first. And so I give her a call, and as the phone rings, I'm kind of scheming how to convince her that pickleball is the best use of our evening tonight. And she picks up, and she says, hey, I'm parking the car out front right now. I'll be home in like 30 seconds. Let's just talk when I get home. And so she comes home, and we catch up, and we talk, and I head out to go play pickleball. And and crush it, by the way, per usual. And it's not until I get back home and walk in the front door that I even remember, shoot, I was supposed to pray today. Oh, well, it's too late. I'll pray tomorrow, I tell myself. But tomorrow comes, and there's this meeting that I had scheduled that I totally forgot about. Oh, well, okay, it's fine. I'll pray tomorrow, I think. And then the next day comes, and... I'm behind on some deadlines. That sermon on prayer is not going to write itself. And so I say to myself again, I'll I'll try again tomorrow. How many people have experienced something like this? No need to actually raise your hands. I know it's almost every single one of you. How often do we try to pray, 
but find that our prayer lives are marked less by intimate, exciting spiritual euphoria and more by distraction. How often do we, with good intentions, bow our head to talk to the Father only to like wake up 20 minutes later with a crick in our neck? How many of us go to prayer and then find ourselves like a broken record saying the same old things over and over and over again? If I can be honest with you, for just a moment. Like, I've been a Christian for about a decade. I've been a pastor for the previous six years, which is not a long time, but it's long enough. And for the majority of my personal adult life, my private prayers have been mediocre, unfocused, distracted, and shockingly brief. Because if I'm honest with you, the narrow path and the footsteps of Jesus often, to me, feels boring and even worse, unproductive. Prayer is work. For some of us, it comes naturally. For most of us, it's an uphill spiritual battle that takes place in the mundane. That's what we're talking about this morning, prayer as work. And to help us talk about that, we're going to look at the story in the book of Daniel. Just to give you a little bit of background to the book of Daniel, Daniel is a Jewish exile being forced to live in the land of Babylon. Now, Babylon is hostile to Daniel's religion and his culture. They don't even call him by his Hebrew name, Daniel. They call him Belshazzar, which is a given name to him, a Babylonian name. And it's here with Daniel in captivity in a foreign land that our story takes place. So I invite you now to listen with open ears as I read from this book that we love. This is Daniel 6, verses 1 to 13. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high official, officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of the lions? The king answered and said, 
The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction which you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Would you pray with me? Father, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I pray now that you would open our eyes, that that we might see the wonders of your word and what it has to tell us about prayer. Give us grace that we might clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom, the narrow path of Jesus Christ. It's through him we pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to talk about prayer as work from two angles. First, prayer as work because prayer is rebellion. And second, prayer as work because prayer requires rhythm. Rebellion and rhythm. First, rebellion. The king in our passage makes this law that says that if anybody makes a petition to anyone but the king, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. What do you notice happens? Well, in verse 10, Daniel hears that the king has made this law about prayer, and then he goes and changes absolutely nothing about his prayer life. Daniel continues in steadfast fidelity to observe his prayer rhythms and defies the law of the king. He rebels against the edict of the king in order to maintain his devotion to the one true God. Now, notice a few things about this, right? Notice that Daniel doesn't do this belligerently, right? He doesn't hear about this edict and then heighten the publicity of his prayer life in an attempt to make like Babylonian headlines. He doesn't hear about the law and then grab a megaphone, paint his chest, head to the town square and begin praying loudly, all while taking pictures for his Instagram. He prays in the privacy of his bedroom. But he also doesn't lessen the publicity of his prayer life. He doesn't hear about the king's new law and then pray quieter than usual, whisper his prayers, or this time begin praying with his windows closed. He continues as he has done previously because he's a steadfast, upright man who doesn't revel in disobedience to the government, but neither does he cower from it. As you might have heard it said of beauty, true righteousness neither begs to be seen nor cowers in the dark. Now, At our present moment in history and in our cultural moment today, I'm not aware of any edicts against personal private prayer. And I have yet to see like a headline on Penn Live about somebody getting chucked into the den of lions, unless they're of a nittany variety. But but prayer, as it was for Daniel, for us too, is rebellion not against the edict of the Babylonian monarch, but against the subtle ideological tides of American individualism. See, we're constantly being discipled and spiritually formed by our world into believing a notion of phony independence. We're discipled to believe that we can depend on no one and no thing. Right? Deep in American mythology is this idea of like self-made men. Rugged individuals who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, who came from nothing and achieved great things, who rely on no one. 
Take that notion and add to it the historical fact that the fast-paced technological, architectural, and medicinal improvements that we've seen over the past few decades have changed our world in a million different ways, and that our area of our world today, on average, not across the board, but on average, is a uniquely safe and comfortable place to live compared to every single other age in human history. Right? For example, we as a culture depend less on the weather than every age to ever exist before us. If a harvest goes bad for ancient Israel, what happens? People starve to death. If a harvest goes bad for us, what happens? Yeah, like I grumble because bananas are more expensive today. If a tree falls on your horse and kills your horse in ancient Israel, what happens? You're just down a horse, a catastrophic amount of money, and probably, like, likely, the source of your family's income. If, if a tree falls and crushes your car today, what happens? You better believe your insurance companies come and handing out checks. And like, you know, if your car is like mine, you might even make money but it be, extends beyond the weather, right? If you want to eat a steak dinner, how many of us have to get our hands covered in the blood of the cow that we raised? None of us. No, 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 We modern people harvest our meat, how? By walking down well-lit, air-conditioned aisles, with background music playing, carefully selecting our choice of a shrink-wrapped package from a cooled glass container, which was placed there by hands in latex gloves, from the truck that shipped the boxes, from the assembly line, which was itself a few hundred miles from the farm where the cow was slaughtered. We are so detached from the ebbs and flows of an ancient agrarian harvest-based society that it's not hard to start believing that Wegmans, not Yahweh, is the ultimate provider of our daily food. And so it's easy for modern people to slip into believing the illusion of independence, one, because rugged individualism has been trained into us from our culture, and two, because we live in an age where so many of our needs are met. But regardless of how advanced our society gets, or how many technological improvements we stumble upon, at the end of the day, no one here is self-made. We are fragile, finite creatures depending upon God for our every breath. There were a few years there, like right after I became a Christian, that I refused to pray before my meals. I just like didn't see it in the Bible. I'm like, you're not going to tell me what to do. The Bible doesn't tell me to do it. I'm not doing it. And so I didn't pray before any meal ever. And it was this idea that convinced me back into that habit. That in a, in a world that pushes the logic of self-sustenance and individualism, one way to rebel against it is to insist on stopping and reminding ourselves that it is God who is to thank for our daily bread, not the restaurant, grocery store, or modern farming techniques. Prayer is a way to rebel and remind us that we are creatures who depend on our creator for sustenance. Which also means that when we don't pray, it's an indication that we don't see ourselves as dependent. Prayer is expressed helplessness. In other words, if you suffer from prayerlessness, it is likely because somewhere deep down in your soul, you look at whatever is happening to you in life and you believe, I've got this. 
Prayer is work because to pray is to swim against the cultural current of the modern West and insist that we are not the ones in control. It's work because it's rebellion. That's the first point. Prayer is rebellion. Second point, prayer is rhythm. Now, in the story that I just read, Daniel has this habit of praying three times a day, every single day, presumably in the morning, afternoon, and evening. Daniel's thrice daily prayer mentioned both in verse 10 and verse 13 is not a new habit, but it's something that he has done for years. We know this because verse 10 says that he did this as he had done previously. So three times a day, Daniel fell to his knees on the mud bricks that made up his Babylonian bedroom floor, opened his window toward the city that he used to call home, and spoke with his God. But this practice is not invented by Daniel as like a novel idea to pass the time while in exile. In fact, this is an ancient Hebrew rhythm that many Israelites practiced in order to maintain religious fidelity to Yahweh. But, but you look at the life of Daniel, I read this story, and it's easy for us to think like, Daniel's extreme, right? He's radical. How Daniel treats prayer is like super righteous. I don't think so. Mature? Almost certainly. Faithful? Absolutely. But Daniel's not a prayer spiritual extremist. His life of fidelity to God and devotion to him is not radical. God's people have always maintained a rhythm of daily prayer. Daniel is just a good example of doing faithfully what ought to be normal. The psalmist in Psalm 55 says, As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. You see the threefold repetition in Psalm 55 as well? It begins with the evening because that's when the Jewish day began, the same reason that Sabbath would begin on Friday at sundown, and then goes morning and afternoon. Three times a day, God's people knelt in ritual, scheduled prayer. But it's not just the Old Testament. The historical evidence suggests that Jesus himself kept a daily prayer rhythm very similar to that. The theologian Scott McKnight on his book on prayer says this. He says, Jesus prayed within the sacred rhythms of Israel, and he knew firsthand their formative influence. And so in Mark 1, Jesus gets up early in the morning to go pray for his morning prayers. In Luke 5, we're told that Jesus had a habit of slipping away into the wilderness to go pray. In Matthew 14, we see that Jesus, when it becomes evening, sends the crowds away, crowds away so that he could be alone for his evening prayer. And it wasn't just Jesus that kept a daily prayer rhythm. So did all of the early church. If you look at Acts 3, you see that the first Christians had scheduled times where they would corporately go together to the temple to pray throughout the day. If you begin looking outside the Bible in the earliest Christian text, the Didache, written as early as the end of the first century, says the same thing. The Didache calls Christians everywhere to pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. The church father, Clement of Rome, says that Christians should make it their habit to pray at set times and hours. Both Clement of Alexandria and Origen refer to prayer three different times a day. Tertullian, Cyprian, Ambrose of Milan, in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, on through the Reformation with Luther and Calvin, every single one of them, without exception, holds that Christians ought to pray at set times throughout the day. They differ on the frequency 
or the specific times a day, but every single one of them says that followers of Jesus should maintain a set daily prayer rhythm. This is not fundamentalism or legalism. This is wisdom. Each of them saw what we so often fail to see, that the real spiritual battles of our lives are not often in the intense, dramatic moments of our lives, but in the day-to-day, ordinary, humdrum mundanity of it all. Prayer comes to us naturally when we're in a foxhole or a hospital waiting room. It's easy to like let loose a prayer to heaven when bullets whiz by your ears or when you're waiting on the doctor's diagnosis. It's when life is normal that it's most difficult. And it's when life is normal, therefore, that we need a structure to depend on. Perhaps I can be slightly more direct and say it to you like this. Unless you find yourself more righteous than all of Israel, thousands of years of Christians, and Jesus, you need a daily prayer rhythm. Our modern obsession with spontaneity and association of spontaneity with genuineness, as if only what is spontaneous can be authentic, has led us to feel like pre-written prayers or set times of day are cold, rote, and mechanistic. But think of it this way, right? Prayer is about a relationship. And for those of you who have been married for any length of time, know that any healthy romance depends on both organic spontaneity and planned calendar events. It's not anti-romance to put on the calendar date nights. And it's not a cold, inorganic thing to do to schedule prayer. Reading aloud from a prayer book when you get a calendar notification and unexpectedly falling on the floor with tears of joy streaming down your face are equally authentic, equally legitimate ways to pray and approach God. Jesus prayed with both free spontaneity and disciplined prayer rhythms, and we should too. The author, Tyler Staten, brilliantly likens the relationship between spontaneous and planned prayer to playing jazz. He writes this, he says, prayer is like jazz. Jazz music is improvisational. Jazz bands don't stare at sheet music. They get lost in the music and let it carry them. A saxophonist in an orchestra sits with perfect posture in a refined, formal opera house. A saxophonist in a jazz trio plays with their back arched, their eyes closed, and an expression of deep satisfaction spread across their face in a smoky, loud club. He is feeling the music, not reading it. The interesting thing about jazz, though, is that it requires a firm understanding of the instrument. A wealth of knowledge and hours of practice makes improvisation not only possible, but enjoyable. In short, if you want to play jazz, you have to learn the sheet music first. And if you want to pray with passion, spontaneity, and freedom, you've got to learn the sheet music first. Now, you might be hearing this and thinking, so like, this is just like physical exercise, right? Work hard, work out. This is just a gym for your soul. Work out spiritually every day and eventually you'll like discipline yourself into holiness, right? You'll just be jacked spiritually. Not quite. 
right? Even the discipline of our prayer rhythms is actually all about grace. The, the theologian Dallas Willard uses this example of sailing, right? He talks about how like a ship with its sails down goes where? No, nowhere. It stays still. How does a ship move? It moves because it puts its sails up and then it moves because of the wind. Not because of the sails, but because of the wind. Our daily prayer rhythms is kind of like that. It's like putting our sails up. We still rely on God's grace, the spirit, the wind to go anywhere. So a prayer rhythm isn't a do-it-yourself project as much as it is putting our lives in the proper posture to be moved by the Holy Spirit when he wants. It is still all of grace. But if our sails are not up, right, that is, if we don't have a daily prayer rhythm, then we will never experience the grace of God in the way we would have if we would have been ready to receive it. If you want to experience the exhilarating spiritual euphoria of a vibrant prayer life, of communion with the Trinity, you must first, like Daniel, establish a daily prayer rhythm and put up the sails. It's work but it's worth it. Prayer is rebellion against the tides of self-sustenance and individualism, and prayer must be a daily rhythm. Now, if this is a new idea to you, or maybe if this is an idea that you are very familiar with failing at, um, I, I want to just give you six helpful tricks at the end of this, just rapid fire, six tricks that I've learned from my own life um, have helped me get started with this rhythm. Um, first would be, if you're looking to create a prayer rhythm, you have to set a time, like an actual time, a calendar no notification. It doesn't have to be three times a day to begin with, and it doesn't have to be a certain time of day, but set an unmovable time in your daily calendar that is exclusively dedicated to prayer. Create a calendar event in your phone to ding and remind you that it's time to pray, and then protect that calendar event and make it a priority. Second would be, Pray out loud. Pray out loud. Not getting distracted while praying is a tall order. And if you merely pray in your head, it's going to be almost impossible. Right? The reason Daniel gets caught praying in our text is not because people could see him praying, but because they could hear him. He was in his upper room after all. They couldn't see him, but hear him. And we find out that not only does Daniel pray out loud, but Jesus prays out loud. That's how we know what Jesus prayed. Third, if it's helpful to you, uh, follow a prayer book. A, a few seconds of Googling will bring up some awesome prayer books to help you pray. So go by like The Valley of Vision or Every Moment Holy or my personal favorites are like one of Barbara Duguid's prayer books um, and pray through them. Use the prayers of people who know how to pray well as like the railroad tracks for your own personal prayer life. Fourth would be change your posture physically, and your physical location. Um, Daniel goes to his bedroom, got on his knees, and faced Jerusalem. Now, God hadn't commanded him anywhere to face a particular direction or pray with his body in a particular physical way, but Daniel had discovered the practical wisdom of praying on his knees with his body oriented toward his homeland to remind him of his true identity. Jesus does the same thing. Again and again throughout the Gospels, we find that when it came time for Jesus to pray, he snuck away to a different part, to the wilderness, to go pray. We should do the same thing. We are not like 
souls wearing bodies. We're not a soul just wearing like an electrified meat suit. We are a soul body composite. We are both physical and both spiritual. So when we pray, we ought to pray with both our bodies and our souls. If we want to change the posture of our soul, we can start by first changing the posture of our body. Pray with your body and with your location. Fifth, um, start where you're at and not where you want to be. Start where you're at and not where you want to be. Don't feel burdened. I can imagine that um, I felt this throughout this prayer series. I'm hearing all of these amazing things about prayer and then I'm feeling like my prayer life doesn't match up to that at all. I've got to go back and just do like a complete renovation of my personal prayer life. Um, don't feel that way. God is gracious. If you can pray for 30 minutes, pray for 30 minutes. If you can pray for five, pray for five. Three, pray for three. Start where you're at. Your Father in heaven loves spending time with you and where you're at is where he will meet you. Start where you're at. And finally, probably most importantly, remember that prayer is about intimacy with God. And, and an enemy of intimacy is insecurity. This is true both in human and divine relationships, right? Personal insecurity causes controlling, doubting, jealous, self-focused, self-pitying behavior. That's also true in our relationship with God. When we are insecure, that is, when we don't know on what basis we stand before the throne, we will always enter the throne room with a lack of confidence, stuttering and stammering, um, Father, please, I'm sorry for... I'm sorry for taking up your time, um, but like if you if you could like please find it in you to and and we would we always approach the throne when we don't know on what basis we stand before it with a lack of confidence, never knowing if God will reject us. And so the first step in having a vibrant prayer life is actually to look to the cross of Jesus Christ and understand that because he did what he did in our place, we can stand before a holy God, perfectly accepted, perfectly loved, never fearing rejection. The ultimate antidote to spiritual insecurity is the gospel. And so may we rebel against the individualism of our culture by persisting in prayer. May we follow in the steps of Jesus and create daily prayer rhythms, hoisting sails by which the Holy Spirit will move us. May we look to the cross of our Savior when we need confidence to go before God. Because if we do, Liberty Church, I am convinced that God's Spirit will give us prayer lives in which we experience the God of the universe. Prayer lives that are both scheduled and spontaneous and prayer lives that not even pickleball can distract us from. Will you pray with me? Father, as we finish talking about prayer this morning, would you remind us once again of the gospel? Would you free us from any burden that is placed on our soul's by the gap of where we should be and where we are in our prayer lives. Will you help us to come to the table 
to eat and drink Jesus, to receive his grace and understand that because he has done what he has done for us, we receive perfect, full, everlasting forgiveness in his name. I pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.